Again, if you if you would like to see it, you can turn to page 671 in your hymnal. Page 671 in your hymnal. You'll find there in the back of your hymnal uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. We are on the last paragraph of chapter 1. And just a reminder, uh, which you hopefully have seen in the church emails as well, uh, this is the last... Um, this is the last message in this mini-series on the first chapter of the Confession. Uh, it's not that I'll never return to the Confession of Faith. Uh, I'm sure I will, in fact, in future times. But uh, I'm switching now to a series through the epistles of Paul to the Thessalonians. So First and Second Thess- Thessalonians, and that'll be on the, on the Sunday afternoons when we have a sermon. That'll be where we are after this. Uh, so we have one paragraph left, though, and we need to do it justice. Paragraph 10, wrapping up and rounding out the doctrine of Scripture. It speaks of the supreme judge in religion. Here's how paragraph 10 reads. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers... Doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. Amen to that. Of course, this is sort of the final capstone statement in the in this first chapter of what has become known as sola scriptura. What it means to have scripture alone as the final authority in the church and the final arbiter of all questions of faith. And it's the final authority on every matter, for that matter, to which it happens to speak along the way as well. We've talked about that before. Well, let's let's break this down in this way. First of all, looking positively at the scripture as the supreme judge in religious controversies. And as part of this first point, we'll look at the texts which were um, footnoted to this paragraph in the Confession. So it is the supreme judge in religious controversies. And then, by way of contrast, we'll look at, at what the Confession mentions as rival judges in religious controversies. What, what might put themselves forward as rivals to the scriptures as the final judge in some religious controversy? So first of all, the supreme judge in religi- religious controversies, which is, of course, the scriptures, which have been delivered, as it says, by the Spirit of God. They're breathed out by God himself. And that's what gives them their inherent authority. Jim Renahan, in his recent exposition of the Confession, writes this about this paragraph. He says, This language develops the thoughts of paragraph 6 and 8, asserting that Scripture stands above all other documents. While other texts may have their place in the church, ultimately the Word of God alone is the authority to settle all differences. 
the items listed are almost self-evident. The English Puritan theologians subordinated human theological reflection to Scripture. That is, all our theological reflection has to submit itself to Scripture. Of course, not all the things mentioned are positive. While decrees of councils and ancient opinions might be helpful, the confession speaks also of human doctrines and private spirits. These last two deserve some comment. Doctrines of men refers to any teachings that arise from human speculation rather than from Scripture. Private spirits is more complex. Garnet Milne demonstrates that the Westminster divines had two senses in mind. Personal, so when we're talking about private spirits, Jim Renahan is saying there, this could be take one of two forms. Uh, personal opinions and private revelations. The first has reference to opinions, theological, moral, or religious, which do not flow distinctly from the text of Scripture. The latter, uh, private revelations, to claims to revelation made by mystical sects. End of quote. So that's just a, a, a quick overview, and of course we'll get deeper into all that in a moment. Let's turn, to first of all, to the scriptures that the confession footnotes here. First of all, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, and verses starting in verse 23. This is the last week of Jesus' life, Passion Week. He's in Jerusalem, and there's this contest back and forth in the temple between Jesus and various religious authorities and teachers. And here the Sadducees come to Jesus to to stump him. They they don't believe in the resurrection of the body. And so they try to make that doctrine look silly uh, with something they think Jesus can't answer, a scenario he can't answer. Matthew 22, verse 23. And so this is indeed, in context, a religious controversy, which is the subject of this paragraph in our confession. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. There's Jesus again, the very son of God. And what does he use for his final authority? The final judge, the supreme judge in religious controversy. It is written. And he uses the very tense of a verb, the present tense, we'd say in the English. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
to settle the matter. And these are, I mean, the Sadducees mostly were the priests in the temple, or the, the chief priest family, that, those aristocratic Jews. Jesus doesn't pander to them and to their, their status. But again, this is the very Son of God, and he appeals to the written word of God as the supreme judge in religion. So why shouldn't we? In any religious controversy. Wonderful example of this. The confession also footnotes Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, or specifically verse 20, but I'll read 19 through 20, 22, excuse me. And you might not notice on first glance what the confession is getting at by quoting this text, but we'll explain it. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you you Gentile Christians, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here it is. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In what sense are the apostles and prophets our foundation? Well, certainly in a general sense, okay, um, especially the apostles, some of them were the, the first disciples Jesus called to himself, right? So you can think about their person. And then the rest of us people are built up upon them, but that's a little too vague, I think. Are we talking here about some sort of apostolic succession? That if we're in the true church, it's because we have a bishop who was appointed by a bishop who was appointed by a bishop who somewhere down the line was appointed by an apostle? Is that what this is talking about? No, (laughs) that's not what this is talking about. How are we built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Well, who was it that Christ Jesus personally designated as his representatives to deliver the new covenant revelation to us, which we now have encapsulated in the New Testament? It was the apostles and New Testament prophets, right? So Ephesians 2 is specifically speaking of the truth which Christ gave us to the apostles and prophets. Not just their person, but their message. The message of the apostles and prophets, which is the New Testament we have now. That's the foundation for the church. And I think that's what the confession is getting at here, in footnoting this here. Um, the The very foundation of the church is the message we have from the apostles and prophets. And, of course, you add that to what the apostles and prophets affirmed was also God's word, the Old Testament, right? Also given to the prophets. But then it also footnotes Acts 28. Acts 28, where here we have an apostle, the apostle Paul, speaking to the Jewish people in Rome, where he was taken to stand trial before Caesar. Acts 28, verses 17 through 24. 
After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore... I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I wear this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And here it is. Middle of verse 23 in Acts 28. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Interesting that we have no record here that on this occasion, Paul worked a miracle for the Jews to as a sign that that Jesus was the Messiah. What did Paul do? He took them to the scriptures they already had. Is or is not Jesus the Messiah? That's the most important religious controversy there could ever be. And Paul takes great pains from morning till evening expounding to them from the law of Moses and the prophets testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. And with that, with the scriptures, Paul rested his case. And it says, verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Let the chips fall where they may. Paul's appeal was the scripture. Again, that's the right example for us. And I'm sure after going through this whole chapter on the doctrine of scripture uh, with all that's gone into that this should be a very this should be a given for us at this point right this is sort of just a summary of everything that's gone before and the capstone of it but what are some rival judges in religious controversies the confession lists four possible examples of rival judges in religious controversies first of all i'm going to go at this a little backwards um So the confession says in in paragraph 10, uh, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all, here it is, all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose sentence we are to rest, etc., can be no other but the Holy Scripture. So it lists... First of all, decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers. I'm going to leave those two for last. I'm going to take the last two first, so reverse order. Um, it mentions, a, uh, sorry, it mentions doctrines of men, and then it mentions private spirits. Doctrines of men. Um, we know from elsewhere in the confession that they understand this phrase 
in the negative sense, which, which sort of takes on in Scripture itself. Uh, chapter 21, paragraph 2, our confession says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. There it is. The doctrines and commandments of men. Uh, God has left the conscience free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also, end of quote. So, again, clearly the confession is using doctrines of men in a negative sense. <clears throat> doctrines of men should never be determinative at any level in a religious controversy, but sometimes they can be. Things that maybe they claim to be scriptural, but they just aren't. Someone, some man, some human came up with this teaching, this doctrine. It came from a man, not from the Bible. A good example of this in Scripture is Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. Uh, one of the classic texts on it, really. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And again, in that context, it wasn't hygiene that they were concerned about. It was, it was ceremonial purity in their eyes. Uh, their, their traditional ceremonies to be ritually pure, even beyond what the law of Moses actually said. Verse 3, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So one of Jesus' classic statements on the doctrines and commandments of men that may appear very spiritual and will claim to be biblical in harmony with the Bible, maybe even stringing from the Bible, they will say, but they're not. And in this case, Jesus demonstrated how these traditions of men for the Pharisees had even caused them to find loopholes in what God had actually said about honoring your father and your mother. So it is possible, as the prophet Isaiah said, and as Jesus quoted Isaiah, it is possible for people to honor God with their lips, but in their heart be far from God. Teaching, uh, well, in vain, emptily worshiping God, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So what would be some present day examples of doctrines of men? And I guess I always have a little concern that I want to list examples, but I always have a little concern that I'll list the examples that um, people will think, oh, those are the only examples then. No, <laughs> there would be an endless supply of examples of doctrines of men, just depending what your background is, what church you're talking about, etc. But let me list a few examples. Sometimes um, 
especially in very conservative sort of churches, traditional external guidelines, which may or may not have originally been useful, they become universalized as something that's just essentially a command of God, like a specific Sunday wardrobe. There may be a good principle that some that people want to be respectful in, in what they wear to church and, you know, not wear swim trunks or something to church. <laughs> There's a principle of respect in, in how we dress for church right. But then some people can take that, and it, in their church it is, you, you need to be in a suit and tie, men, or you're not being respectful of God, right? Well, that's not anywhere in Scripture. And by the way, what would Jesus wear? Well, he'd wear a robe, not pants, but not a suit. Anyway, if you want to get that, uh, that nitty-gritty with it, um, sometimes there's a specific Sunday wardrobe that becomes a mark of spirituality for some people. Again, there, there's some principles that, um, yeah, we want to be appropriate according to Christian wisdom in what we wear to church, but that's just it. It's, it's wisdom. It's not a specific standard that God set. This is exactly the list, right? Most of you men are glad that I'm not holding to this standard because I'm about the only one in here with a suit and tie on. <laughs> um, but some will say, okay, it's a specific haircut and grooming. There was a day when, especially because beards were associated with being a hippie, <laughs> Or something of that nature. It was wrong. As a, as a Christian man. To have a beard in, in some people's eyes. Right? Was that in scripture? No. They plucked out Jesus' beard. But anyway. Um, it became a commandment of men. Or, or if you talk about what instrumentation to use in worship. Again there's some good principles to keep in mind. Of what's appropriate. What's not. What carries a reverent message well, what does not? And yet, some will then make a hard, draw a hard line and say, no guitars in worship. Even if I'm on the mission, no guitars in worship. Bring a piano. <laughs> to the Amazon, bring a piano or something. Maybe a cappella. Uh, because, again, maybe there was originally something, th- think again, uh, when... Uh, Christian rock was just coming into its own in the 70s, 80s. And people were like, oh, guitars. That Are they trying to bring in Christian rock? Okay, no guitars. <laughs> it's a doctrine of men. If, if people said that that's not just an, a guideline maybe for our church or something, but that's, that's what it is to obey God. Or how about um, we could think of more, maybe some examples from um, the Christian past, a little farther back, but which some people still practice today, thinking that they're obeying God by doing this. How about the traditional church calendar with its holy days? Now, I don't mind, you know I don't mind, on Easter, preaching about the resurrection. I get a, an extra reason to preach about the resurrection on the Lord's Day. I'm going to take it. And if unbelievers are potentially coming in to hear about that, I'd love to tell them about it. Um, similar idea with Christmas. I'll preach on gladly on the incarnation at Christmas time. So I'm not being legalistic the other way here. 
that if, if you all acknowledge that happening in the culture, you're disobeying God. That's also a commandment of men. But, you know, if, if observance of Easter, Christmas, and then Lent, and then Epiphany, and then feast days of the saints, and the list keeps getting longer, if that becomes mandatory for Christians to be faithful Christians, that's a doctrine and commandment of men, isn't it? You, are you aware of, the, of um, practically one, one of the major events that started the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland, with Ulrich Zwingli? He was to the south of Martin Luther, but he was at the same time period. Literally, I don't think even Zwingli himself partook on the occasion, but he was hanging out with gentlemen who during Lent decided to eat sausages together. Reformation. <laughs> we don't have to abide by these commandments of men. It's, it's Lent. Okay. <laughs> did Jesus command that? No, he did not. This was very real. Like, that stuff was very real in the context of the Reformation, out of which confessions like this sprang. All sorts of things over time can take on a life of their own because some respected church leader somewhere started a ball rolling. And it becomes a becomes a doctrine of men. Now, private spirits, what's that about? <clears throat> um, in the day when the Baptists were first arising in England, they weren't the only group splitting off from the Church of England and from, um, say, other, other Puritan congregations and so on. In fact, one of the reasons our confession was put out there was to distinguish the particular Baptists from some crazier groups out there, uh, some, some wilder groups. Uh, certain Anabaptist sects, and Anabaptist is a broad term, some were better, better than others. Also the Quakers. Heard of the Quakers? Um, now, I've, I've actually heard that there are some um, churches coming out of that society of friends, as they call themselves, that uh, have become maybe more just generically evangelical uh, in recent years. I don't know. But originally, the Quakers in England, this was, um, I think it was George Fox, was it? Uh, his last name was Fox. He started the Quakers. And this, this, was, this was a major issue for the Baptists as well. People pendulum swinging from errors on the one hand um, and the, the doctrines of men being enforced by the church and all this. They'd swing over to extreme liberty and freedom so that um, we don't even have pastors, for instance. We just gather and everyone has the inner light of the Holy Spirit and someone just speaks up as the Spirit gives them utterance in the service, things like that. It was... It was um, it was swinging the pendulum way over to chaos, really, religious chaos. And this idea of private spirits was a big part of that. Um, private revelations from the spirit, supposedly. As, uh, as Jim Renahan again says, for the Baptists, this emphasis on the finality of Scripture as over against enthusiasm was essential. That they used the word enthusiasm back then of, of these 
these groups that were that were doing wild things. Scripture is the supreme judge in controversy, as well as the test of all other sources of truth, real or imagined. Um, the language of our confession acknowledges that there were some claims to private revelation, but it doesn't say that those claims were legitimate. But as Renahan says, rather, uh, the confession here is seeking to state comprehensively that there is nothing men may claim that is above or beyond Scripture. Uh, skipping down some, he says, uh, the Quakers regularly and frequently accused the Puritans of holding to a dead letter because of the Puritan focus on the centrality of the written word. For the Quakers, the living internal testimony of the Spirit was of exceedingly greater importance than dry and dead words printed on a page. In the case of the Confession, even claims to private spirits, without giving credence to them, had to be subordinated to the Scripture, given by the Spirit as a fixed rule of faith. You notice how it specifically said in the same paragraph, the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. So, private revelations by the Spirit would have nothing to say against the book the Spirit gave us, the Holy Scriptures. And now this is from a man named Richard Dale Land, talking more about the Quakers interacting with people like the Baptists. He says, The Bible formed the final basis of appeal and the supreme authority for the Puritan. The Quaker, however, interpreted this as reliance on a mere outward letter and proclaimed that true religion must be based on a personal spiritual experience with the light within. The Quakers often accused their Puritan detractors of ignoring the role of the Spirit in Revelation and in biblical interpretation. Fox openly challenged the priority assigned to Scripture by the Puritans. Fox's stance on this issue arose out of his personal experience of direct revelation, not mediated through Scripture. He explained that God had revealed to him that the light of Christ was in all men. Notice, not just in all Christians, all men. This is what Fox had to say. Now the Lord God hath opened to me by his invisible power, how that every man was enlightened by the divine light of Christ. And I saw it shine through all, and that they that believed in it came out of condemnation and came to the light of life and became the children of it. But they that hated it and did not believe in it were condemned by it, though they made a profession of Christ. So he's saying even Christians who deny this inner light are condemned. This I saw in the pure openings of the light, without the help of any man, neither did I then know where to find it in the scriptures, though afterwards, searching the scriptures, I found it. <laughs> okay. All right. You found it later in the scriptures, after you believed it. Okay. For I saw in that light and spirit which was before scripture was given forth, and which led the holy men of God to give them forth, that all must come to that spirit, if they would know God, or Christ, or the scriptures aright, which they that gave them forth were led and taught by. So in other words, as Richard Land continues, if men acknowledged the light within, if men acknowledged the light within, they then possessed the same endowment of the spirit which had indwelt the man who produced the Bible. Thus, Fox rejected the Puritan distinction between the spirit's extraordinary indwelling of biblical writers and the more ordinary way in which believers of subsequent ages were indwelt. Since the same spirit that brought forth the scripture now indwelt the Quaker, Fox denied the oft-repeated accusation that the Quaker Christ within contradicted scripture. 
Although Fox and the early Quakers assumed their message never contradicted Scripture, the granting of priority to the Spirit made the Spirit, rather than the Scripture, the touchstone and final authority. That's the end of that quote. Well, the Quakers of that day were pretty radical. And they went into all sorts of rank heresy very quickly. Um, I believe, uh, historically speaking, I think I've seen this, that there, it ended up that there were Christian Quakers. There were also some who would call themselves Quakers who were more Jewish or Buddhist or something else. <laughs> but uh, they, rad- they radically departed from the scripture as their real final authority. And it brought them to dangerous places. Of course, there would be present-day applications of private spirits. Um, some people say some things like this rather innocently when they're just saying that that maybe God was working in my mind to remind me of a truth from Scripture. Maybe they'll say something when that's what they really mean. <laughs> but be careful when people say, I got a word from God. Or God told me. Thus and so. Again, be careful when you're interacting with a person who says that. Often it may be an immature Christian who, um, who doesn't understand what they're implying by saying it that way. Maybe they mean, and we should be charitable until we find out otherwise, maybe they mean that the Lord is just working in their heart with the truths he's taught them from the scripture and he's applying it in their life. That's okay. <laughs> but if they're really saying... God spoke to me just like he spoke to those writers of scripture. That, that's a private spirit. That's what the confession is talking about. And that's no fit judge for a religious controversy. Oh, God told you that, did he? I guess he forgot to tell the apostles and prophets. But he told you. Okay. Now let's back up to counsels and opinions of ancient writers. Let me read you two paragraphs Um, well, one paragraph each from two other confessions of the Reformation era. I read this a while back in this series, but I think it's worth repeating. The first is Article 5 of the Gallican, meaning the French Confession of 1559. So these were people in France who were uh, friends of John Calvin and men like him. They said, We believe that the word contained in these books has proceeded from God and receives its authority from him alone and not from men. And inasmuch as it is the rule of all truth, containing all that is necessary for the service of God and for our salvation, it is not lawful for men, nor even for angels, to add to it, to take away from it, or to change it. Whence it follows, here's where it directly connects to our paragraph, whence it follows that no authority, whether of antiquity, that is, this is ancient, or custom, or numbers, so many people have believed this, or human wisdom, or judgments, or proclamations, or edicts, or decrees, or councils, church councils, or visions, or miracles, there's the private spirits sort of thing. So none of that, it says, should be opposed to these holy scriptures. But on the contrary, all things should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to them. Even things that church councils have said, even things of antiquity, ancient writers, should be regulated and reformed according to the scriptures, it says. And therefore, they say, we confess the three creeds, to wit, that is, the Apostles' Creed, 
the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed because they are in accordance with the word of God. See what they did? These um, French believers said, yes, we hold to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, but not just because some church council said they were creeds. We hold to them because they line up. They are in accordance with the word of God. That's why we believe them, foundationally. Similarly, the Belgic Confession of 1561, Article 7, and this is one of the three forms of unity. You'll hear that talked about, along with the canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism for a lot of Reformed people from Europe. Here's what the Belgic Confession says here. We believe that these holy scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul saith. For since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it doth thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Here it is. Neither may we compare any writings of men though ever so holy, with those divine scriptures. There's the writing opinions of ancient writers. Nor ought we to compare custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times or persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, with the truth of God. That is, we cannot compare any of those things with the truth of God. For the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever doth not agree with this infallible rule which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits whether they are of God. Likewise, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. You know, sometimes even good men can be Um, careless and how they talk about what makes heresy heresy what makes something an orthodox a right doctrine Dr. Sam Waldron um, did a uh, posted an article back last year in March 31st of last year and the way he titled it was he was asking a genuine question of fellow Reformed folks. He said, do we still believe in sola scriptura? And in uh, is a long article. Uh, one of the, he, he mentioned some concerning statements where he said, these are good brothers who are writing or saying things, but the way they're saying this troubles me. And one thing he mentioned was a quote from Matthew Barrett. He said, in my recent reading, I came across another statement from a Reformed brother that worried me. Here it is. The quote said, to depart from the creed is to depart from scriptural teaching itself. Now, that's maybe true as far as it goes, if we're talking about like the Nicene Creed. Heresy, he said, is a belief that contradicts, denies, or undermines a doctrine that an ecumenical church council has declared biblical and essential to Christianity. What makes heresy so subtle and dangerous? 
It is nurtured within the church and is wrapped within Christian vocabulary. Its representatives even quote the Bible. It often presents itself as the whole truth when it is a half-truth. Uh, now, Dr. Walden responds. He says, once more, there is an element of truth in this statement. Until the Reformation, practically speaking, heresy consisted of views that contradicted the scriptural teaching regarding the Trinity and the person of Christ, which were articulated in the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds. But surely, formally and authoritatively speaking, heresy has to be defined as false teaching that overthrows foundational scriptural teaching. This is, and uh, uh, skipping down a little bit, he says, such errors must be finally determined by Scripture. Remember, and then he quotes our paragraph, paragraph 10 of chapter 1 of our confession. He says, a statement like the one quoted above raises serious questions. So when and where were the errors and heresies of Roman Catholicism condemned by an ecumenical church council? And how shall we decide if it was an ecumenical church council? Must not the answers to such questions finally be determined by sola scriptura? Heresy is not finally defined by church councils, but by scripture alone. There's more I can send you for context and whatnot if, if you would like that. But sometimes good men make careless mistakes in defining orthodoxy or in heresy. It's not ultimately a, just, oh, an ecumenical church council said it. And therefore, it's orthodox. Scripture is ultimate. But other times, other times we're not talking about just carelessness. Other times, someone actually begins to shift from confidence in Scripture as the foundation to confidence in a theological tradition or a historical stream of thought. So good and necessary things that confess scriptural truth become the ultimate things, and then they're treated as practically infallible. As if this tradition or that document were just incapable of error on its own. So beware, beware any theologian who resents the request to demonstrate his theology with scripture. If you ask someone kindly, respectfully, oh, where in scripture is that doctrine taught? And if they respond with bluster, with offense, that tells you something, doesn't it? And don't think it can't happen in our circles or in other good circles. It can and it has before. I won't get into this now, but I was reading just again this morning of another man who many, many Reformed folks really revered and honestly some were fanboys of him. <laughs> And then it came out, he's a full-on heretic now. <laughs> and for years, when his friends wanted to make sure that he was orthodox, he would respond with like, well, how dare you question me? <laughs> and now it's come out. <clears throat> so we have to be cautious and not place, uh, not just give people always the benefit of the doubt, but be sure they're, they're actually trusting in Scripture as their ultimate judge of what's true and, and right in religion. Beware the man who exalts a creed or confession above the scripture. Obviously, we're a confessional church, but scripture is above our confession. Beware the man who talks more about ancient ecumenical councils than about scripture. 
Again, we do and we should hold to the creeds that came from the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon. But that's not because they were ecumenical councils. It's because those particular creeds faithfully confess the doctrine taught in the scriptures. That's why. Likewise, if you talk about ancient writers, it's so hard to do because our hearts are idol factories, right? Beware exalting any old writer above the scriptures, even if he's Augustine of Hippo, or Thomas Aquinas, or Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or your favorite Puritan, or Jonathan Edwards. Maybe that warning is more needed in a church like ours than in some churches because we value old books, right? A lot of you are here largely because you you read the old books and it showed you stuff from Scripture. So I'm not against old books. Throw me out if I am. But those can become an idol sometimes when our real authority is a man. So I'll close with what I hope you've heard before, but you're going to hear it now. Just two excerpts from it. Two excerpts from what Martin Luther said when he was on trial before the, what was called the Holy Roman Emperor and his princes. At It looks like the Diet of Worms in English. It was the Diet of Worms. <laughs> but uh, they weren't eating worms. But it was, a, it was a, uh, an imperial uh, court that was called, a meeting, And Martin Luther was on trial for heresy. Here are two excerpts from what he said on that occasion. He said, yet as I am a mere man and not God, I will defend myself after the example of Jesus Christ, who said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. But if well, why dost thou strike me? How much more should I, who am but dust and ashes and so and so prone to error, Desire that everyone should bring forward what he can against my doctrine. Therefore, most serene emperor, and you illustrious princes, and all, whether high or low, who hear me, I implore you by the mercies of God to prove to me by the writings of the prophets and apostles that I am in error. As soon as I shall be convinced, I will instantly retract all my errors and will myself be the first to seize my writings and commit them to the flames." skipping down to the end of what he said on that occasion. This is how he finished. Since your most serene majesty and your highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons If I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther was just a man. I just told you not to idolize him. But he got that right. That's the standard. And I think that's a fitting way to end our study of the doctrine of Scripture. Love the Bible more than anyone or anything else and trust it more than anyone or anything else. That's the bottom line. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for our time together thinking about your word and taking examples from your word to speak in this way. Please give us the grace of perseverance in this holy faith, clinging to your very words, for they are the words of everlasting life. To whom else shall we go, Lord Jesus? You have these words of life. So don't let us wander away from you looking for a man or a group of men or a writing of men or a private revelation or anything else as if that would be better than your own words written down for us. Lord, please protect us from apostasy and protect us even from lesser errors that we may better serve you and better glorify you and be happy in you as you want us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.